The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, it is the Christmas season, and so we we kicked it off as a church last week by taking them a whole month of December, taking a break from Corinthians and uh, looking at some unique facet or attribute about the true meaning of Christmas, which is about the birth of the Messiah and how he came into the world to be the Savior of the world. And we wanted to accentuate that and showcase that as a church. It's just a great privilege to be able to do that, as that is neglected in the world. Uh, the true meaning of Christmas is every year it's, it's just drowned out by the world, the true meaning. little challenge this week is you're in Safeway or Lucky's or just shopping, and the, you hear the Christmas music in the background and try to discern what tune it is, see if it's Frosty the Snowman, or White Christmas, or if it's a song actually about Jesus. That's always kind of interesting to see what kind of music they're playing in the background, whether at Macy's or wherever you are, um, just to see what the world and how they're interpreting uh, Christmas for us. We have God's Word, which has absolute clarity on the meaning of Christmas. Christmas has the word Christ in it, appropriately so. So, the month of December, we just have this great privilege. We're, for four Sundays, we're talking about uh, some key points, really key prophecies, and looking at them in a very uh, close way that we're not typically able to, to see what these prophecies had to say about this coming Messiah, this one who was to be born. And So last week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, and then this week, we'll look at Isaiah 9.6.2, uh, just amazing prophecies from the Old Testament. Last week, if you weren't here, Look at Genesis 3.15, that's all we looked at. That um, the very beginning of the age, God promised that a Messiah, a Savior, would come and his one of his main goals would be to conquer Satan and the works of Satan. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, to come and conquer Satan, who was real. And those of you who were here, you got surprised with a pop quiz, 10 questions on Satan. And uh, then I clarified through an email that I made a boo-boo on that first question because I didn't read my question correctly, because I wanted all the answers to be simplified so that you answer no. So if you uh, were here last week and you took the Satan quiz, just so you know, that first point was uh, the truth is Satan is indeed a person or a personal being. So I don't want you to be confused, but he's not a human. He's not a man. He doesn't have a physical human body. He's a spirit, but he is a person in that he has personal attributes just like we do. So I wanted to clarify that. It's a good reminder that uh, the Apostle Paul, probably the best Bible teacher in the history of the world and possibly the universe, saved Jesus uh, when he went into the Berean city. He was preaching and the Bereans were checking the scriptures to make sure Paul didn't make any boo-boos. you got to do that with all Bible teachers, including Pastor McManus, because he might make a boo-boo every now and then. So the Word of God is without error, but the messenger isn't always flawless. So anyway, I want to make sure you got clarity on that from last week. So today we look at this great prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles and look at Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read verses 1 through 6 together. Follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 9. And we're, we're going to stay in this text today and just highlight some truths about it as it speaks very specifically and clearly to this coming Messiah. As you're flipping there to Isaiah, just so you know, Isaiah, a prophet, uh, born, raised, lived, ministered near Jerusalem. So he was a Jew. He lived about 700 years before Christ. He actually, his ministry was amazing because it was from 739 B.C. till about 55 years later it lasted. 
So that's a long, very long tenure for a prophet. Uh, and God called him to preach and to preach of warning because in 720, he started preaching in 739 B.C. and in 722, God allowed Assyria to come in from the north and attack northern Israel and pretty much decimate it and wipe it out. And Isaiah was warning that that was coming and this pagan nation was coming to be the chastening hand of God Almighty if they didn't repent. So that's uh, a big message, part of Isaiah's message. So, And Isaiah, one of the longest books in our Bible, 66 chapters long in English. It's got more words than just about any other book in the Bible. Isaiah is quoted over 65 times in the New Testament, which is more than any other Old Testament book. So uh, he is a significant prophet, and he's probably got more messianic prophecies than just about any Old Testament book as well. So very meaty and quite appropriate to look at this wonderful and amazing prophet and what he had to say in this specific instance about the coming Messiah. So let's follow along as I read, starting at verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. The great light here is is the promised Messiah who is to come. This is 700 years before Jesus was born. Prophecy regarding this great light who is going to come and give relief to the people. Gentiles, including the Jews, uh, they will see a great light. Those who, That's why Jesus said he was the light of the world. It comes right out of Old Testament prophecy. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply, you as God, God shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle, tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Boy, those first five verses seem quite obscure if you don't know what he's talking about. We're going to explain that. And then verse 6, this explicit prophecy regarding this coming warrior Messiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 9 and 6 and break it down a little bit. Uh, The message there is called the Coming Messiah Part 2, specifically looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Can't exhaust all of its truths, but we can look at the highlights. Most importantly, being reminded of who Jesus is. What is Christmas all about? What are we celebrating at Christmas? Is it Frosty the Snowman? Is it getting presents? Is it Santa Claus? Is it shopping at Macy's? No, it is about the coming Messiah who now has come and been a blessing to the world, whether they realize it or not, and being blessed, most importantly, by virtue of who he is. And so that's really what Isaiah 9-6 is all about. It talks about what he would do, but more importantly, it talks about who this Messiah would be, who this Jesus would be. Who is Jesus? The proper answer to that is in Scripture. Because the world over says they know who Jesus is. Every religion, for the most part, says they believe in Jesus or they teach on Jesus or claim to know who Jesus was and who he is. As a matter of fact, 
just an example, the Quran has the name of Jesus in it almost a hundred times. The holy book of the Muslims. But unfortunately, they don't understand properly who Jesus is. They would refer to him as a prophet, as a holy man. And a holy man who even did miracles here and there. But they don't have a proper understanding of who he really was. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, just about like no other single verse, tells us the uniqueness of who Jesus was. And that's what Christmas is all about. We celebrate the unique Messiah, the unique Christ. So let's go ahead and look at it. Just six truths that I'm going to pull out of this one verse. Before we get to verse 6, just to set the context, go back to verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9 and just I want to highlight some of the meaning there. So God is talking through Isaiah to disobedient Israel and in particular the northern kingdom of Israel that had been disobedient with compromise for really hundreds of years through idolatry, worshiping statues and rocks through immorality and compromise, intermarriage with pagans they shouldn't have done. So they've got this long list of sin and compromise, and God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to try to woo them back before he sent in pagan nations to chasten them, and that's going to be the Assyrians in 722. And so God's trying to warn his people, and this is a warning, verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her. So they are in the midst of gloom and judgment from the Assyrians who came in and when Assyria attacked Israel in 722 B.C., they attacked from the north up. So you got Galilee up here, and then you got uh, Jerusalem down here, and you got the Sea of Galilee up here, and you got the Dead Sea down here where Jerusalem is. And then Assyria came in, and they attacked in the north, and they attacked by the Sea of Galilee, and they attacked in the two area tribes historically known as Naphtali and Zebulun is where Assyria came in and made their attack. And so that's why verse 1 refers to Zebulun and Naphtali. The Assyrians have come in. They have attacked. They've decimated Israel. They've brought severe calamity. And so God is saying, yes, this is calamity is chastening for a short period, but you're still my people. I'm still going to be faithful to you, Israel. I'm still going to keep my word and fulfill all of my promises, and I will restore you. And there is a day of light and rejoicing and recovery and fulfillment coming in the immediate future and in the ultimate future and that promise would be, would be ultimately fulfilled by the coming of the Messiah. So he says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. So, yeah, you're in pain, you're in toil, you're in suffering right now under the Assyrians, Israel, but it's only for a time. In earlier times, God treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, Naphtali with contempt as he brought in the Assyrians to chasten and overtake Israel. But later on, see, this is the question. This is prophetic literature. This is where it kind of gets confusing. But later on, it's not going to be that way. He, God shall make it glorious. God is going to help you overcome the Assyrians. He's going to help you overcome wrath of the nations. He's going to restore you. The question is, when is this prophecy fulfilled? When does God fulfill His prophecy and restore the northern kingdom of Israel? When will that happen? It's kind of the mystery. So he um, later on, God is going to make it glorious. Is the nation of Israel glorious right now? No, they're messed up. They have 27 nations literally on their borders surrounding them that want their death. That's today. Has the history of Israel been glorious for the last 2,000 years? Absolutely not. They're almost eradicated two times in history under Hitler and then also under the Roman emperor in the 2nd century A.D. So when is this glorious time for Israel? That is prophesied here. But later on, God shall make 
it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he gets very specific. There's going to be blessing and there's going to be glory. There's going to be a light that shines specifically. Where the Assyrians came in and attacked and destroyed Israel is the very place where God is going to bring blessing and a light. And lo and behold, we know that the Messiah, when Jesus came 2,000 years later, he was a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the Jews. He brought healing. He brought the gospel He brought the salvation message. He accomplished spiritual salvation on behalf of anyone that would believe. And he was born and raised in Galilee. So the coming of Jesus is part of the fulfillment of this prophecy in verse 1. The first coming of Christ. But this prophecy would be fulfilled incrementally, little by little, three different times. Uh, The first fulfillment of it was when God overcame the Assyrians historically before Christ came. The second part of that fulfillment was when Jesus came to Galilee because that's what Matthew 4 says. Matthew 4 quotes this verse and attributes it to the coming of Jesus the first time. He was a light and a blessing to the Gentiles. And then there's ultimate fulfillment here that is yet to come in the future and we're going to see that when the Messiah comes the second time and fulfills ultimately and completely everything that is prophesied in these six verses because we're going to see some prophecy here that has not been fulfilled especially the political components and the earthly components and the material components that you see. Apparently this coming Messiah is literally going to rule on the earth as a warrior, as a political figure, and just eradicate all of his enemies, all the enemies of Israel, and bring total glory and fulfillment to the nation of Israel. That hasn't happened yet. But it's coming in the future. We're going to see that. And so, but later on, he, God, shall make it glorious by way of the sea there in Galilee. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see the great light. That would be the Jews and the Gentiles. Those who live in a dark land, the light shall shine upon them. Jesus is the light. You, that's God, verse 3, shall multiply the nation. That's God staying true to his promise to Abraham that he would continue to uh, multiply the seeds and the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, all throughout history. So many descendants, they're more than the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. God is continuing to be true to His promise even in the midst of chastening. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, For you, God, shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. Uh, That's a promise that God would uh, relieve the nation of Israel of all of its enemy oppressors. And they've had many throughout history, from the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Romans. And there's yet another kingdom that will persecute them in the future that God will also have to overcome on their behalf. So that is a loaded statement in verse 4. That has not been fulfilled ultimately yet, but it will. So it's still yet future but it begins the process began with the coming of the messiah the first time verse five for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult so this is talking about the future this hasn't happened verse five yet this is the literal liberation that the messiah is going to provide for the nation of israel for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire in other words war will end and there will be peace uh War hasn't ended. We have dozens of wars going on right now on planet Earth. And we will continue to have wars and rumors of wars until Christ comes to settle all of this. Well, how is all this going to happen and be fulfilled verses 1 through 5? Well, the answer is in verse 6. It's going to be through a person 
It's going to be through God Himself coming down from heaven, taking on a human body, and being the God-man, Messiah, ruler, and king on the earth. Not just at His first coming, but ultimately when He comes again at His second coming. And so verse 6 tells us who the solution and who the answer is, and that is the Messiah. And it says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders, and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So let's go ahead and look more closely at those Uh, six truths regarding who this Messiah would be, starting with point number one. What about this coming Messiah, this Jesus we celebrate? What was he really like? Was he just a misguided rabbi who was abandoned by his 12 friends? Or he just a great teacher, as some would say. Some would say he was a phony, counterfeit prophet, and they despise his name. And others say he was just a great man, great social worker. But Scripture is clear he was more than that. Point number one, the Messiah was to be the God-man, and as a result, our perfect substitute. We talked about this last week, so we'll just highlight it a little bit. Now, what is amazing in verse 6, it says, uh, put your finger in Galatians chapter 4 or 2, because we're going to flip there in a second, in where I think uh, the Apostle Paul shows where part of this verse is fulfilled at the coming of Christ the first time, Galatians chapter 4. We'll read that in a second. But look very closely at uh, verse 6. It says, For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And in context, if you ask most people, even like I was telling you, the Jehovah's Witnesses, nice ladies that came to my door about a month ago, when I read their Bible, I read this verse. And I, I read verse 6, For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And I asked them, Who is this child? Who is this son? And they said, Jesus. And I said, Ding, ding, Good answer, good answer. That is Jesus. And they were quite happy. Well, it is Jesus. So this is a promise of this coming child who is also a son. Now, some people read this and they think, well, for a child will be born to us. That's the first phrase. And then a son will be given to us. That's just kind of a synonymous repetition. It's saying the same thing twice. It's not really saying the same thing twice. It's saying two very different but complementary things in those two phrases. And Paul picks up on it. He talks about it in Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 4. So the beginning of verse 6 tells us about this Messiah. He's not going to be just a human because the first part does say that the Messiah will be indeed a human being. A child will be born to us. That is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Where God said, I'm going to give you a descendant, a man who will come from the loins of of Eve, who was a woman. The Messiah had to be a human. And Luke chapter 3, Luke's genealogy accentuates the fact that Jesus was a 100% human, a real human, because early on in the Christian church, there were people who denied that truth. They overemphasized the deity of Christ by limiting and playing down the reality that Jesus was a human. Some professing Christians early on in the church said, no, Jesus wasn't human because they thought humanity just simply equaled weakness and sin. And that's where they were in error. And so they overemphasized the fact that, no, he's God, he just looked like a human. He's God and he acted like a human. He's God and he only had the appearance of a human. He seemed like a human but he wasn't. That was called seemism. That was a heresy, a false doctrine. It's even around today. He just seemed like a human, looked like a human, but he really wasn't. He had to be 100% human because he had to be our perfect substitute. Only a human could die for your sins and my sins. 
So it had to be, an animal was not sufficient. Animal sacrifices were only temporary. They were not sufficient. A human and a perfect human had to die for another human's sins. And that's why the Messiah had to be human. Jesus was. And so the beginning of verse 6 is emphasizing that the Messiah would indeed be 100% humanity. And Jesus has not always been a human. Jesus, before he was born of Mary, existed, but he was not human. He was not a man. He existed. He was a person. He was part of the Trinity. He was not a man. He didn't have a body. Then he came down to the earth that he created took on a human body, lived for 33 years on planet Earth, got crucified in that physical body, was died and buried in that body, rose again in a new, a new supernatural, resurrected, physical human body, ascended back into heaven as the God-man in a physical resurrection body, and Jesus reigns on high in heaven right now, somehow, in a physical human body. The almighty, infinite God of the universe has a physical body. I don't know how that works. That seems impossible, but it's a mystery that may be revealed to us in the afterlife when we see God. But that's how Jesus exists now. He took on humanity. He's 100% human because He needed to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners. And so uh, here's the promise, that the Messiah will be born as a boy and He will be born of a woman like any other human being coming from a woman, but there's going to be something unique and different. And that's the second part of the verse where it says, but a son will be given. Now, son is huge because son takes us back to previous prophecies. Son takes us back that title son, very specific, very technical, takes us back immediately to Isaiah 714 when God promised that the Messiah would be a virgin born son. And the title son also takes us back to second Samuel in the days of David, where God promised that there would be a son of David who would be a king and a ruler. And so son speaks of uh, something very specific in terms of the Messiah's role, reigning on behalf of God, coming from directly from God. He would be the unique son, the only born son, a son that was different than any other son or daughter of God. There'd be something unique about this son. So son speaks of uniqueness about the identity of the Messiah. He's a man, but he's more than a man. That's what son is. That's why in the, the Gospel of John, it keeps talking about Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of God. That was a technical term in the Gospel of John. When, and then when Jesus said, I am the Son of God and I am the Son of the Father, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes who were the masters of the Old Testament had much of it memorized. They taught on it authoritatively and they knew that the title or the word Son was uniquely reserved for someone special and that it claimed deity for itself. And that's why in John 10 and John 8, when Jesus said he was the son of God, the unique son of God, the only son of God, John 3:16, that infuriated the Pharisees, Sadducees and scribes. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy because he was claiming to be equal with God. So they knew what that term meant. The phrase the son of God has lost virtually all meaning in our day and age with most people. I mean, I grew up religious, not in a Bible-believing Christian home, but I grew up in a religious home. I heard stories about Jesus, even though I didn't read the Bible. I heard teachings about Jesus, even though it wasn't taught from Scripture. But one thing I was always taught, and if you were to ask me for 19 years, do you believe in Jesus? I would have said, yeah, even though I didn't know him. thought I did, but I didn't. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Who is Jesus? I would have said, my first answer would have been, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. 
But at that time, I didn't know what that meant. I just thought, well, he's one of many sons of God. But Scripture is clear. That title, Son of God, is absolutely unique, and it actually speaks of deity. That is clear from Scripture. And so that, with that insight, that background, and then you go back and read, for a child, a human child will be born of a woman to us, humanity, as Savior. Not only that, he will be more than a human, a son, the son, the unique son of God, the one who came directly from God. And that's if you go to John chapter six and read through that chapter and see how many times Jesus said, I came from the father, I came from the father, I came down from heaven, I came down from heaven, I came down from heaven, like manna from heaven. He just repeats that over and over and over again, trying to say, I am the unique Messiah. I came directly from the father. Do you understand that? I came from the Father. I was given to you by the Father. So it says in verse 6, so a son, notice it doesn't say a son will be born to us. The unique Son of God who is deity could not be born because birth implies the beginning of existence. Jesus as the Son has always and eternally Existed. That is clear from the Psalms in the book of Hebrews. He's an eternal being. Jesus as the Son of the Father, the Son of God, the unique Son of God as deity could not have been born and come into existence for the first time. And that's why I think the language is very precise here. A Son, the unique Son of God, will be given. Given by who? God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Just in that little phrase, it tells us everything we need to know about Christ in terms of 100% Man and a hundred percent God, that he would be born of a woman, and at the same time he would have a unique birth through the virgin birth given by the Father, with no human father involved in the process. Amazing. So he is the God man, and as a result, he had to be a perfect substitute. So now go to Galatians chapter four and look what Paul has to say about this unique Savior, Jesus. The sonship of Christ. This whole chapter is talking about Jesus' unique sonship. The Son of God. Um, and then in verse... I'll just pick up at verse 3 in Galatians 4. So also we, Christians, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, when the prophecies were meant to be fulfilled, like Isaiah 9.6 and Isaiah 7.14 and Genesis 3.15, God's perfect timing, but when the fullness of time came... When Mary was born and Joseph was there, God, get this, God sent forth His Son. Remember back in Isaiah 9-6 when it said a son would be given, not born? A son is not born, a son is given. He's given by the Father. And here Paul says, God would send forth His Son. That's John 3-16 as well. God would send the Son directly from heaven. But also born of a woman. So he's unique. He is God, man, 100%. Born of Eve, but sent by God. No human father, the virgin birth. Absolutely amazing. And so we have, through Jesus, the perfect substitute for us. He can identify 100% with my humanity and die for me. But he, as the God-man, he is powerful enough to forgive all of my sin and conquer death and the grave on my behalf. So... That is the blessed Messiah. Go back to Isaiah 9.6 and we'll look at the second truth here about this coming Messiah. Jesus would be the God-man, our perfect substitute, but also, uh, number two, the Messiah was to be a sovereign ruler. And as a result, 
in total control. Sovereign. Look at the last five letters of the word sovereign. Reign. That's a good definition of the word sovereign. Someone who reigns and the word for sovereign really is someone who is in total control. Actually, you can be someone who reigns but not have total control. A ruler. But sovereign speaks of someone who has total control in a certain jurisdiction. And so Jesus is the sovereign one. He has total control over all things. Ruling ability. Uh, he's the sovereign ruler. He is in total control. That's Isaiah 9, 6. As it goes on, a child will be born to us, a son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Uh, what government? Well, all human governments all throughout human history. Uh, the governments uh, of angels and the heavens and virtually all of creation. They will rest the government and all that is and all the responsibilities that go with that will rest on his shoulders. What a beautiful portrait and imagery of the power of Jesus Christ to handle it all and be in control of all things. It's on his shoulders. It is no problem. Uh, there is no surprise to him whatsoever of anything that happens in the world, in our life, uh, in the heavens, among demons, all throughout history. He is in total control. What a comfort that is for us, for those who know him. This is our blessed Messiah. He's not this, just this helpless victim emaciated on a cross, crucified forevermore. He overcame that and rose again from the dead and reigns on high as the sovereign one who is in total control. Think about your week this week. And were there times where you felt kind of out of control? On one leg, a little off kilter, a little... I did. I think that happens every week in my life. What do we need during those times? We need stability. We need solid ground. And we need somebody who is in total control. And to go to somebody during those times and get comfort from them and to know that they are in control, they know about your problem, they know your need, and they just put you at ease. And you know what? That's what Jesus is for us, for those who know Him. He is the sovereign ruler. He holds the entire governments of all of world history on His shoulders. In other words, He's, got, he's managing everything perfectly. He knows all that's going on. He knows all the uh, idiosyncrasies, challenges and idiosyncrasies and uh, problems that come along and all the variables involved and he is in absolute total control for us he is our constant he is stable he is on the throne he is on the throne that's a beautiful reminder that i've heard from people throughout the years other christians usually older christians who've walked life and have greater experience and more trials they've had to do in life and i share a concern that i have or a struggle i have and many times they'll say well god is still on the throne jesus is still on the throne that's not a flippant platitude either that's a reality for the Christian. Jesus is on the throne. So in light of, I, don't know, I don't care what your problem is or my problem that you are dealing with right now. If you are a believer, be comforted with the fact that Jesus is on the throne. The Lord is on the throne. Isn't that good news? That is our blessed Savior. He is on the throne. He is in control. This is Get this. This is a part of His plan. He didn't make it happen if it's a bad thing, but you know what? He knew that variable was coming and he knows exactly where that puzzle piece goes, even though we might not. Because all things work together for good actually go there. We need this reminder. We need this comfort in the midst of our challenging, unstable lives. As you get older, at least as I get older, I feel like I'm more out of control than ever. Think back and, wow, how naive I was when I was 24 when I thought I was in total control. Had all the answers. And then you got, uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 8, actually, verse 
28, and we know, we Christians that is, unbelievers don't know this. This is a certainty. We know categorically, dogmatically, black. you Christians are so black and white. Yeah, on this one I am. We know for sure, absolutely, convincingly, that God, Jesus is God, by the way. We know for certain that Jesus causes all things. All, even bad things? Yes. Even bad things. Even trials. God causes all things. Jesus causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't cause the bad things to happen. He doesn't inflict us with sin. He doesn't tempt us. God tempts no one. What He does cause is He takes the trials in our life, the incidents in our life, or what the good, the bad, and the ugly of our life, and he's, He knows where it goes. He's got a plan. This doesn't throw Him off. He's in absolute total control. He has a goal. It's going to be accomplished. We are on the right path. We are all headed there. We are headed for glory if you're a child or son of daughter of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to, our, to His purpose. So if you know God, you love God, He's in control, He's on your team, and He's going to take everything coming your way, and He is putting it together for His glory and for your good and for my good. And how comforting that is to the soul of a believer. So He's the sovereign ruler. He's in total control. The government will rest upon His shoulder. Now, as you read some of the details here, okay, the government rests on his shoulder, so he's going to be a, like a governmental figure? He's going to be a political person? I don't think Jesus was really that political the first time he came 2,000 years ago. I don't recall him ever campaigning and running for political office. He probably would have lost miserably because there's so many people who didn't like him. But he, he didn't really get involved in politics but as you, or, or the military. But when, so a lot of times when you read Old Testament prophecies, it seems like the Messiah is going to be this military figure and this political figure and uh, doing things literally on the earth. And then you look at Scripture and say, well, actually most of his work was like spiritual. And when he left, he, the Romans weren't conquered and overcome. And the last 2,000 years of world history is pretty messed up. And we've got messed up governments today. And Christians are being persecuted like never before. And I don't see any political justice or military might on behalf of Christians in the church world. What's going on? Is this just mythical and allegorical and it's not really going to be fulfilled? No, actually, it's literal. These are literal promises. But like I said, a lot of prophecy is fulfilled incrementally. Some immediately in history, then some throughout time in history, the first coming of Christ, and then some of it will be fulfilled in the future when Christ comes again. So these military promises, these political promises of overcoming the enemies of God's people and the nation of Israel is yet future. And that is going to happen absolutely because Jesus has assumed that role as a political figure that he didn't really exercise at the first time when he came. The first time he came as suffering servant. The next time he comes as conquering warrior. That's just the fact. That's Scripture. So if you go to Revelation, it is all over Revelation. Revelation is the future. Revelation is, get this, literal. And it is all about Jesus is in every chapter. And in the future when Jesus comes, starting in Genesis chapter or Revelation chapter 2, it talks about Jesus ruling with a rod of iron over the nations on the earth, smashing His enemies like pottery. That is going to happen in the future. Then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, it says that Jesus will rule on the earth, literally. That's not happening. Jesus is not literally ruling on the earth. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is ruling, but He's ruling in abstentia. 
And he's not ruling politically and militarily right now, but he will in the future. That promise is going to be fulfilled. And then you go to Revelation 19, and it shows when it's going to happen. When he comes up in the air, riding on his white horse as the Word of God with a sword of coming out of his mouth, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and he comes down and he literally sets foot on planet Earth in Israel, and he destroys his enemies, and it is a bloody mess. And then he begins his reign for 1,000 years on the earth in the future. That is yet coming. That is literal. That's called the millennium. It is in the Bible. And Jesus will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords in the future. And all these promises from the Old Testament of political and military and physical earthly dominance will be fulfilled to the T. And He will do that because He is the sovereign ruler and has those rights. Right now, the mission of the church primarily is spiritual, getting out the Gospel message until Christ comes and reigns literally on the earth. In the meantime, He is totally in control of all things and heeds to the prayers of His saints. So, Jesus is the sovereign ruler in total control. Let's go on to the next phrase there in Isaiah 9.6 about this coming Messiah and what Jesus is like other than being the God-man and our perfect substitute and the sovereign ruler who's totally in control. He would also be called, this beautiful phrase, the, the Wonderful Counselor. His name will be called the Wonderful Counselor. Now, nobody according to the four Gospels called Him Wonderful Counselor. So when it says His name, that's speaking of His character, His nature, the role that He occupies, rightfully so. And... The next few phrases are couplets. They should go together. Wonderful counselor, that goes together. They shouldn't be separated, technically. Mighty God, that goes together. Eternal Father, that goes together. Prince of Peace. So those are phrases that need to be kept together. So he's called the wonderful counselor. The Hebrew word in wonderful is a great word. It means incomprehensible one. Incomprehensible. Beyond imagination. That's Jesus. He is wonderful. He is incomprehensible. We, we cannot fathom Him or confine Him in our limited, finite human mind. But also, not only does it speak of infiniteness and incomprehensibility, but uh, just a blessedness, it, a truly wonderful, something that is pleasant, something that just puts us in awe of how beautiful it is. And that would be the Messiah, a beautiful Savior, incomprehensible, un, incomparable, blessed Savior who would be our Counselor. The word Counselor there means Counselor, the one who gives comfort, the one who at times exhorts to motivate us like a good coach. Sometimes the counselor brings correction when we need it. So it's a multifaceted ministry of Jesus, the counselor. The Holy Spirit is not the only one who is our counselor. Jesus is our counselor. And he's a wonderful one, isn't he? Wonderful speaks of not just wisdom, but infinite wisdom. What do counselors provide? First and foremost, counselors give wisdom. They impart wisdom to fill in our limited thinking. And the book of Proverbs is clear that there is victory in a multitude of counselors. And if Jesus is your counselor, that is ultimate victory. So I don't know how your week went. Were you lacking wisdom in decision-making this week and you just thought, man, I just don't know what to do? Oh, I was. I think that happens to me every week or every day. And I can think about times where the book of Proverbs says that People who make decisions, and especially important decisions, without getting counsel are foolish or stupid. Yeah, the word stupid is in the Bible. And I can actually think of times in my life as a Christian where I did not get counsel from godly people. And I suffered the consequences as a result. And I look back and I think, boy, that was stupid. Well, that's what Proverbs says I was. And it was true. 
And so hopefully over the years we learn to do what Proverbs says, get counsel from godly counselors who will help impart wisdom so that we can have victory, so that we can have success. And the first counselor that we should ever go to when we need wisdom would be Jesus. We do that in prayer. So our first resort always and forevermore should be go to God in prayer, right? Go to God in prayer. Go to Jesus in prayer. Call him the wonderful counselor. Lord Jesus, I need your help. I need your advice. I need your wisdom. I need your direction. And I need it now. Please give me insight through your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word, through God's people, and through your ministry as the wonderful counselor in a way that only you can. And you know what? The Lord Jesus, he's going to answer that prayer. He promises to. He is the wonderful counselor. He loves his people. He loves his saints, he's not going to abandon us. He told us he would be with us always, right? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be your wonderful counselor. We need counselors. We need helpers. And Jesus promises to be that. This Messiah would be that very thing. Another thing that I wanted to put there, the Messiah was to be the wonderful counselor, our perfect friend. That's what I think of a counselor. When I want counsel, especially serious, important confidential, sacred counsel. Boy, I want somebody that I can trust more than anybody else. And I want a trusted friend to be my counselor. And that's one of the imageries that came to my mind that Jesus is this wonderful counselor. You can trust Him more than anybody. Every other friend you have right now, I guarantee you, will let you down at some point. They will disappoint you. Jesus will not. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your friend. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your judge your savior your lord your master and he's your friend that's what scripture says isn't that amazing beautiful intimacy at the end of his three-year ministry jesus said to his 11 disciples not judas his 11 disciples that knew him he said you are you are my friends i call you friends that's that beautiful personal relationship that only christianity provides every other religion in the world doesn't have this intimacy with the very god who claims to be their judge savior and ruler I mean, just think about it. Jesus is my friend. People in Islam do not, and they would admit this, they do not say that uh, Allah is my friend. The Quran is very clear on that. Allah is their judge. It doesn't say Allah is their friend. They don't speak that way. They don't use those terms. That phrase doesn't exist in the Quran. In our Bible, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the judge. And if you know him personally, Jesus is your friend. Wow, that's awesome. You ever feel lonely and need a friend? You're a Christian. Jesus is your friend. Go to Him. He's always there. He will never let you down. Beautiful promise. He's the wonderful counselor. Go to Him in prayer always. Option number one. So this coming Messiah would be the God-man, sovereign ruler, wonderful counselor. It also says in that next phrase that He would be the mighty God. Isaiah 9.6 The mighty God. The Messiah would be the mighty God. Our ultimate judge. There's a lot of truths uh, that speak to the fact that Jesus is God or who God is. God is the creator. So Jesus is the creator. God is the judge. So Jesus is the judge. And everything that God is. One popular religion, actually two of them, popular American religions would say that we believe in Jesus. And then they tell us that, and if you question, they'll say, yeah, I guess Jesus is God. And they will know, well, Jesus is God, but not eternal God, the ultimate God, the almighty God. He's God with a little G. He's a God. He's inferior to God the Father. Well, not according to this passage. The Messiah would actually be mighty God. 
Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is God. He is deity, and everything about God is true of Jesus as deity. God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. God never had a beginning. Jesus never had a beginning. God has always existed. Jesus has always existed. God is perfect. Jesus is perfect. Even in Christianity and evangelicalism today, there are people, theologians, churches, pastors, saying that God is changing. God is growing. Can you believe that? It's called open theism. It's been going on for 20 years. God is growing. God is learning. God is changing. God is improving. No, He's not. God is not growing and improving and changing. God is perfect. He is changeless. He knows everything. Everything about Him is perfect because He's God, He is deity, and Jesus is the mighty God. He is deity. So as a result, because God, because Jesus is God, He deserves our worship. We worship Jesus. We pray to Jesus. That is also unique of biblical Christianity. So when you pray, who do I pray to? Do I, I thought I had to pray to the Father. Well, we do. Our Father who art in heaven. But we also pray to Jesus and through Jesus because He's one with the Father. If you've seen Me, you have seen the Father, Jesus said to His disciples. And then Steve, in that blessed little prayer that he prays in Acts, he prayed directly to Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. He is one with the Father. We can pray to Jesus and talk to Him as we're also commanded to talk and pray to the Father because the Father and Jesus are one. Jesus is God. And what I put there is He's our ultimate judge. 2 Timothy 4.1 says that Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. John chapter 5, Jesus told the disciples... And to the Jews of his day, and this was very surprising. This is what made the Pharisees so mad. Jesus said that the Father has entrusted to the Son, Jesus, all judgment. And so when people come out of the graves at the end of the age, Jesus is the one who judges, judges all souls. And that's why they became infuriated with him. They thought he was supplanting the role of Almighty God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. Little did they know that Jesus was Almighty God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. So in Revelation chapter 20, when it talks about judgment at the end of the age, and there was one sitting on a great white throne who judged all souls throughout all history, that is Jesus, the judge. The Father judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son. Amazing truth. He is the one to whom we have to give an account. And that's an encouraging thing for us as Christians, too, because we go through life all the time getting falsely accused at times by people, right? People who don't know your thoughts. They don't know your actions. They didn't see everything. They can't read your motives. Sometimes you feel helpless. And then you have to resign yourself to the fact, well, that's okay. I have a clear conscience before Almighty God and Jesus, my judge. And he will make all things right someday. And there's going to be a lot of surprises for all of us that day when he makes all things known. But he's the perfect judge. Never wrong always makes the right decision a blessed truth for all of us all the injustices of all of world history and even what's going on right now in the world that bring us down give us a heavy heart disgust us those all things will be made right vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and the one who repays is jesus our blessed judge isn't it wonderful to know the judge personally isn't it wonderful even more to know that the judge not just knows you but he actually loves you and he calls you friend if you're a believer I'm personal friends with the judge. Oh, well, that doesn't sound like a fair hearing or trial. Well, too bad it's in the Bible. So this wonderful Messiah is the God-man, the sovereign ruler, our wonderful counselor, the mighty God. And then the next one, the Messiah was to be the, get this, the father of eternity. That is the literal Hebrew translation and interpretation. Father of eternity. Or another translation says Father of the ages. That's actually even better. Father of eternity, Father of the ages. 
He is our only constant. He's the only one that never changes. Now, this phrase stumps people up when they read it in the English text. Uh, he is eternal father. That sounds like, oh, so Jesus is God the father. No, Jesus is not God the father. That is not what this is saying. That's not what the Hebrew text says. When it says father, literally the word is speaking of the origin of. That's what it means. Or the source of. He is the source of eternity. He is the origin of eternity. He is the eternal one who gives the origin of all things for his people. So literally some of the better translations that are literal talk about how he is the father of eternity, the origin of eternity, the origin of the ages. In other words, this is emphasizing the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. He has always existed. He was never at a time created or came into being. He has always existed and he's always remained the same. And so Jesus, this blessed Messiah, isn't just a man. He's the eternal one who always remains constant. He never changes in his nature. He did change in his outward form in the, by the virtue of the fact that he became God became a man. There was a change. It was an outward change. But even when Jesus had that outward change, nothing changed in his essence. Nothing changed in his being. Nothing changed in his attributes. Nothing changed in his character or who he was as the eternal God. And that's what we mean by Jesus remains eternally constant and he's the source of all things the eternal one with god the father and the holy spirit but just to make it clear jesus is not the father the father is a distinct person from jesus jesus and the father are one and they make up the one triune god of the universe but they are different persons they love each other they interact with each other so jesus is not the Father God, but He is the origin and the Father-like figure over His people in a very intimate and shepherding way. And also He has this eternal nature to Him, meaning that He never changes. He's always constant. And that's why I love Hebrews 13.8 that talks about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. That is amazing. God is the only constant there that exists in the universe. And that's who this Messiah would be, the eternal one. And then that last phrase, the Messiah was to be the Prince of Peace. Our only mediator. He's the Prince of Peace. Well, what's the emphasis here? On world peace? No. I mean, think about it. If Jesus' goal the first time was to bring world peace, He was a failure because it didn't happen. When He died, left, and resurrected into heaven, the world was a mess. There have been wars and rumors of wars ever since Jesus left. There's wars and there's a lack of peace on the earth right now. So we know Jesus' first coming wasn't to bring world peace, political peace, military peace, corporate peace the first time. That's one of his goals, but it's yet to come in the future. His first goal was to bring individual peace and spiritual peace, peace between the sinner and a holy God. That's what this is emphasizing. That's why he came the first time. That's why he's the Prince of Peace. He is the, the author of spiritual, individual peace between rebel enemy sinners who make peace with a holy God. That's the word reconciliation. That's what reconciliation means. Two enemy parties making peace and now having unity as friends. And that's what the Prince of Peace, Jesus, came to do the first time by virtue of his ministry of the suffering servant, live a perfect life, willingly die on the cross, suffer the wrath of God for sinners, buried, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, conquered death, sin, and the grave on high on behalf of sinners so that sinners who believed in this blessed Savior Jesus and asked Him for forgiveness of sin when He adopted those sinners into His family, 
They immediately had peace with the Holy God for the first time in their existence. Every single one of us, whether you realize it or not, was born into this world with a sin nature. We were born fallen. We were born, get this, children of wrath. We were born enemies of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you are an enemy of God. Now this stumps unbelievers up routinely. Because most of the world is religious. They don't get it when Christians say that. So you need to be more specific to help them get over that hurdle of semantics. What do you mean, I'm an enemy of God? I love God. I serve God. I'm a humanitarian. My religion is all about God. I pray to God. I serve God. I go to a building that worships God. I give my whole life for God. God dominates my thoughts. How dare you judgmental Christians say that I am an enemy of God? Well, we need to change our terminology or be more specific. Well, what I meant to say was, According to the Bible, you are an enemy. We are all, as we're born, we are enemies of Christ. You're an enemy of Jesus. Now, that might change the conversation. Because some people, they don't like the word Jesus. Or they don't like to talk about Him. And they don't like what He stands for. That's being more specific. That actually might be more helpful as we interact with unbelievers about what this is talking about. Go to Romans chapter 5 in light of this truth that every human being that's born into the world is born fallen, condemned, sinful, a child of wrath, an enemy of God, and needs to be, get this, born again, because that's what Jesus said. John chapter 3, you need to be born again, you need to be spiritually reborn, because before that happens, you're an enemy of God, you actually hate God in your soul. No, I don't. Yes, you do. But you're just, we are deceived. We don't realize that. So, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, and he's reminding Christians of what they were really like before they got saved, or what their true nature was. Um, starting, we'll start at verse six. For while we were, while we Christians were still helpless, in other words, before we got saved, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for his friends or those in good standing at the time. He died for those who didn't deserve it. He died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies. He died for children of wrath. He died for those who hated him. He died for those against him, verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, pathetic, lowly, undeserving sinners, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means Christ died for his enemies. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, verse 10, this is the key, for if while we were enemies, there it is, before you were a Christian, you were an enemy of God, an enemy of Christ. For if while we were enemies of God and enemies of Christ, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. What a great truth. We were enemies. We weren't seeking God. We weren't seeking holiness. We weren't running after God. We were running from God in our souls. And yet He was pursuing us and hounding us down as the blessed Savior. And it was all His doing. I mean, I just remember me growing up. There are many times I'd put my fist in God's face. I knew where I stood. Yet He saved me anyway. And if you're a Christian, He saved you anyway. And so what He, he is the peace of, He's the peace of a personal relationship with the Holy God between Holy God and an undeserving sinner who's an enemy of God. And they need reconciliation. And Jesus accomplished that by His wonderful work on the cross and by His perfect life. And as a result, He's our only mediator. And that's why 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, there's only one mediator between a holy God and sinful men, and it's Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. It's someone who goes between two warring enemy parties and 
Jesus was that perfect mediator for us. He still is our wonderful mediator. We pray to Jesus. We pray through Jesus directly to the Father. He continues to be our blessed mediator. And there is no other mediator. Roman Catholicism, which I was raised in formally and taught in, in their formal writings, doctrine, and teaching, they say that Jesus is the mediator, which is a good thing. But they also say that Mary is a co-mediatrix. She's the co-mediator just as much as Jesus is. That is not true. That's not in the Bible. Here's Jesus. He's the mediator. Mary's down here with me and you. Enemies uh, of God who were graciously saved. And so Mary needed Jesus as a mediator just as much as we do. Very important to keep that in mind. There are no uh, challengers to his role as the only mediator. And with that, I just want to bless you and meditate on these truths throughout the week and today celebrating the Christmas season with just this great verse and this wonderfully blessed meaty biblical truth of who our wonderful Savior Jesus is. With that, let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to our Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this time together and time in the Word. God, remind us through your indwelling Holy Spirit, your people, the children of God, of the content of Isaiah 9-6, just amazing of who Jesus is to us on a personal level. And what a comfort. He fulfills every role and every need that we have. Thank you for that supernatural resource we have in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.